Thanks, Eric. Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany. Glad that you could be with us as we worship together. This first Sunday after Easter, I'll invite you to take a moment and pray with me as we open the scriptures. Father, thank you so much that we can gather within these walls. We trust, pray, and ask now that your Holy Spirit would teach us, uh, particularly in this era, this season, we're mindful that uh, there's anxiety in many lives. And we invite then you to speak to us in order that we might be people of peace in the midst of our world. So toward that end, uh, speak to us, give us responsive hearts, we pray in the name of Christ who is our hope. Amen. I'll begin this, uh, this morning by telling you about the time in my life when I came closest to dying. And uh, it was not in a mountaineering accident, though I have come close to dying in the mountains a couple of times, once getting caught in an avalanche, once on Mount Rainier, rockfall above me coming down. Uh, and a rock missing me by this much, right? Uh, like the size of a microwave rock. It was a big rock. Uh, but those things, that's not the closest I came to dying. The closest I came to dying was when I was in uh, second grade and I went to a party for the kids' choir in which I sang at church. So those choirs are dangerous, I'm telling you. <laughs> what happened was uh, there was a swimming pool, and uh, at the deep end, there's a big slide. Big picture, a big public uh, pool and a big slide, right? And then, you know, the choir director and the adults say, we're all kind of like this. If you don't know how to swim, you can't go on the slide. It's forbidden because it's in the deep end. Well, I didn't know how to swim, but that slide was more tempting than Eve's apple, right? Like, I could not get it out of my mind that I want to go on that slide. So... When nobody's looking, I kind of made my way over there to the slide, and I went up, and I slid down. It was amazing. It was ton tons of fun. And then I went in, and it was deeper than I am tall. So I sank to the bottom, kicked up to catch some air, uh, but I couldn't get over to the shallow end. Every time I would go down, back down, I get a little deeper. If you can picture how the pool slopes, you know, it's all getting deeper and deeper until... I was at the point where I jumped up and I couldn't get my head above the water. And then panic sets in, right? And then I tried again and I'm, now I'm, I'm drowning. I, I'm really, I'm actually drowning. I was terrified. I'll never forget the, the emotion of fear. And then lifeguard grabs me, pulls me up. I breathe, puts me on the edge. Any lifeguards in the room? Anybody? A lifeguard? A couple of you. Yeah, see? Good. Thank you. I want to thank you. Thanks for being there. So, puts me on the side, and then, you know, the choir director, never again, I knew you'd do this, kind of thing. 
And she's right. Yeah, I did it. But here's what I want you to see. Think with me for just a moment about the emotion of fear. And know this, this is a truth about fear. Fear is paralyzing. Like our decision-making capacity is severely diminished whenever we are in a state of fear. Fear kills in you the, the part of your brain that is called executive function, like your capacity to make wise decisions, is gone when you're afraid. And the Bible has a message for you over 365 times this single exhortation, do not fear. It starts all clear back in Genesis, and it goes all the way to the book of Revelation. It's over and over again. Here's a phrase, do not fear. Don't fear. 365 times you hear that phrase, don't fear. And so uh, we find then, when we pick up our story this morning post Easter the disciples. They lived with Jesus for three years. They saw the miracles. They knew his identity. They understood him to be Messiah, son of God. And yet when we pick up the story up, John chapter 20, verse 19, this is what we read. The, they were in a room cowering. It says, and the door was locked for fear. Boom. So I know Jesus, love Jesus, want to follow Jesus, and I'm afraid, and I'm paralyzed with my fear. I'm hiding, cowering, in a tiny room with a locked door. Why are they afraid? Well, a couple of things. First, the religious leaders were on a roll, right? They'd killed Jesus, convincing Rome to crucify Jesus as this kind of rebellious uh, threat to the state. And Peter had tried to kill a few of the Roman soldiers who came to arrest Jesus uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He pulls out a sword and starts whacking around, cuts a guy's ear off. And, and, and so the Jewish and Roman leaders were hugely threatened by messianic movements. And so here's the 12 who were wholly identified with Jesus' Messiah. They've left everything. They've staked their lives on Jesus and his declaration to be Messiah, to usher in a new kingdom. And now not only is he gone, but they, having stood by him, are likely being sought as accomplices. They're, they're afraid for their lives. Right? So that's the first thing. Second thing on top of that is the disciples are mindful of, of their catastrophic failure to be devoted to Jesus on the last night of his human life uh, because they'd been arguing on that very night about who was going to be greatest when Jesus said, don't be great, be a servant. And then Jesus says to them in the Garden of Gethsemane, hey, could you stay awake with me? And they fall asleep. And then he says, hey, I'm going to be arrested. Can you stand by me? And they all fled. And then he says to Peter, uh, by the way, you're going to deny me, Peter. And Peter says, I'll never deny you, man. I'll, you know, if I have to die, I'll die following you. And then he denies Jesus three times. So, you know, failure at every point, so they're dealing not only with fear, they're dealing with shame. Fear and shame, two real emotions, not present only in 32 AD, present today, right? And so, uh, what do we see in our own lives? Well, we see a couple of observations. First of all, know this, fear is a real possibility, in fact, a reality. Fear is a reality in any life when things feel beyond your control. Like when you're out of control, you're afraid, right? So why am I wearing black this morning? Because here's the reality. Nothing is in control of you. Nothing. So, so uh, you're afraid when everything's beyond your control, and hello, everything's beyond your control. Have a nice day, right? So, so fear then becomes kind of this default position for many, many people who begin to live life in a way, defensively, so as not to lose what they already have, if you, if you know. And then we lay on top of that shame, because shame is a thing. And so everything's beyond your control. Your health is beyond your control. Like, if you think you're healthy because you take fish oil pills, you're naive, right? <laughs> and I take the pills. But I know people who, you know, have much better eating habits than I do, and they're dying of cancer. 
And I know people who go to marriage seminars and they, and they do all the stuff they're supposed to do to have a happy marriage. Oh yeah, you know, eye contact, check. Hug, check. How was your day? Check. Divorce, check. Done, right? Like it doesn't always work. And you can't raise perfect kids though you try. They're, they're, like there's no guarantees. When couples get married, they stand somewhere here, right about here, I think. They stand about here. Don't they, Carly, stand about here? Yeah, they stand about here. And they do their vows, and they go, you know, for better and worse, richer for poorer, sickness and in health. He says it, she says it. They look at each other. They've got, you know, starry eyes and tears usually and stuff like that. And, I, and so I've done this enough now that I know the lines by heart, and so I say a phrase, they say a phrase. Dun, 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 dun. And then here's, the, I'm not even listening to my words. Here's what I'm thinking. You two have no idea what you're saying right now. You don't have a clue. <laughs> You don't have a clue. And I don't, I don't mean it pejoratively like you guys are, you know, you shouldn't get married. Oh, no. I'm just telling you, you don't know. You don't know what the future holds. For, really? You just said in sickness and in health. Has anyone told you about the possibility of dementia or liver failure or diabetes or children with diabetes or infertility or cancer or, God forbid, pediatric cancer? Do you know? You don't know. And you get married anyway. So what's in your control? Nothing. And so how in a world uh, where we're not really in control, where control is an illusion, and in a world where we fail, how can we live as people of peace? Well, this is why we come to this text, because the disciples are dealing with fear and shame. Fear, uh, my whole world has collapsed. Shame, I, you know, I failed Jesus. Us, fear, Nothing's in our control. Shame. Here's Paul in Romans 7, and we're just like him. The good I want to do, I don't do. I want to live over here, but I'm here. I try, I fail. The bad things that I don't want to do, I do. I'd rather be this person, but I'm that person. I repent. I try again. I get close. I fail. I get closer. I fail. I get closer. I keep failing. And here's Paul, who knew Christ, loved Christ, saw Christ on the Damascus Road, and his summary statement, Romans 7, wretched man that I am. Shame. So if fear and shame are real, and they are, then this text is very important for us. Because after the resurrection, Jesus shows up in the midst of the disciples' fear and shame in the same way in which he shows up for you and I today. And he offers them and us a chance to change the trajectory of our lives and live not as people of fear and shame, but as people of peace and confidence. Wow. But doing so requires that we uh, embrace three actions, and these are the three actions. First, I need to receive the peace of Christ. Second, I need to embrace union with Christ. And third, I need to share the gospel. Receive the peace, embrace the union, share the gospel. We're going to look at these three things now. So join me as we see this. Here's the text, receive the peace. John chapter 20, the disciples are in the room. The door is locked for fear of the Jews, and we read that Jesus shows up. It was evening on that day, the first day of the week. The doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. It's dark, it's evening. Jesus came, stood in their midst, and said to them, Peace be with you. And, and then if you skip down just a bit to verse 26, you notice eight, after eight days, the disciples are again in the room, Thomas with him. Jesus came, the door having been shut and stood in their midst. And so we don't know if in this case it was the manner in which Jesus appeared, but it's likely in this text that Jesus didn't open the door, but that the, though the door was shut, Jesus came and just 
showed up. He walked through the door. In his resurrection, so he's able to do that. So Jesus, it says he showed up in their midst. He came and stood in their midst. Not that he came through the door. He came and stood in their midst. And then he says to them, peace be with you. What a crazy thing to say to the disciples, right? And, 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 and the reason that it seems crazy to me is because if these are my disciples here in the front row, what did Jesus say? Remember? He said, look, can you stay awake with me in the garden? And they fell asleep. He said, look, can you be a servant leader? Yeah, yeah, it'd be interesting, Jesus. Hey, we got a question. Which one of us is greatest? He said, uh, you, you know, you're all going to fail me. You know, you're all going to abandon me. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, we got swords. You know, we're ready. Then they all abandoned. And he says, by the way, put your swords away. And Peter pulls his sword out. <laughs> and then he says specifically to Peter, you know, you're going to deny me. Peter says, I'll never deny you. And then he denies him three times. So like everything that Jesus asked of them, they didn't do. <laughs> and the things that he didn't want them to do, they did do. Like you couldn't get any worse. And you're, now you're in the room. You have failed Jesus. And to, there's an extent to which Jesus failed you. I mean, you left fishing. You left tax collecting. You left your kind of lucrative career doing whatever it is that you were doing. And, and you staked everything on Christ. This, he's our man. And now he's dead gone, and you failed it. So then when Jesus shows up, his word to the disciples is, um, peace be with you. Are you kidding me? You know what I would have said to the disciples if I had showed up that day? I'd be like this. This is my disciples, first row. See, I told you guys. What a <laughs> disastrous group. Like, I told you to do it. You didn't. I told you not to do it. You did. Everything. Can you not do anything right? No, you can't. You're fired. Second row, come on. I need new disciples, right? <laughs> Like, I, that's what I would do because, come on, you, clearly you can't perform. That's not Jesus. Jesus never asked of us, hear me, never, ever asked of you performance. We live in a performance world. And so we presume that when we fail, Jesus is mad at us and we preemptively bench ourselves. We're out of God's story. That's the disciples in this text. Forgive me, I don't usually pound on the pulpit. That's the disciples in this text, right? Because what are they doing? They're saying, you know, even if he is alive, because Mary's already seen him, even if he's alive, we're worthless. I failed. Hey, I love it. Why do I love this story? Because I failed too. So Jesus comes, first words to the disciples who categorically did nothing. I mean, they scored zero on the test. Not 70, like, nice try. Nothing. And his first word, peace. Now, what is it about this peace of Christ? Well, watch this. The peace that Christ offered them, he's already spoken of. John chapter 14, verse 27, just before uh, being arrested and executed, Jesus said, look, I'm giving you a peace. And then this is what he says. The peace I'm giving you is not the peace of the world. Well, what is the peace of the world? Here's the peace of the world. Uh, our world offers peace, but it's a contingent peace. Do you know what I mean by that? Oh, yeah. To be at peace, what do I need? I need to be in a setting where everything is working. And so when you're in your world and you're at peace, the reason that you're at peace is because there's nothing in your world that's broken. Does that, does that make sense? Like my car is running, my kids are healthy, and, you know, my house is, is the roof doesn't leak, and my wife and I are still talking to each other. Peace. Okay, now, here's the problem with that kind of peace. Uh, get this. The more complex your world becomes the more stuff there is that can break. Is that true? So you amass, you know, you, now you don't have a car, you have three cars and a scooter. <laughs> and you know, then you have a dog, you know, and then, you know, you, then you have kids. Oh, peace. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> right? 
that it just all this stuff keeps happening, and your life is more complex. Now, with, it, with every added complexity, there's more stuff to break. Does this make sense? So what do we do? Well, there's a movement now in our culture. Well, and the culture comes along and says, hey, you know what the problem is? You have too much stuff. So, hello, welcome minimalism. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. Come on, it's time for all you to be zen. Like, burn your possessions or go to Goodwill or something like that. Because if you don't have anything, then nothing can break. And if nothing can break, you'll be at peace. Listen, that's the peace that the world offers you. That's a contingent piece. And, 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 and the thesis behind that movement is if you have less stuff, then you have less stuff to worry about, then you're going to have peace. Jesus says, no, I'm giving you a peace that is different than that. It's not contingent on your wealth. If you have a lot of money, you can have a lot of money. If you have a big boat, you can have a big boat. If you, like if you, have, if you have two boats and four cars, if that's your calling, fine. You can have peace. Because the peace is not contingent on everything working. Because, hello, Everything is never working. So the peace that God gives us is a peace without any contingency so that we can be at peace. Psalm 46.1 says it this way, even if the mountains should fall into the sea, peace. Thermonuclear war, peace. Economic downturn, peace. Amazon decides to hire 1,000 employees a week and our city rents keep going up, peace. Like Bertha never finishes, Peace. Like, peace is available. Yes, right in the midst of all the unsolved problems. You know, it doesn't mean we don't pay attention to the problems, but the peace is not contingent. It's yours now. That's what Jesus is saying. And so, so uh, we need then to learn how to be people of peace. And how do, we, like, how do we receive this peace? Well, if God has given you the peace then you have the peace, and yet the New Testament says this, Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 16 or so, says, look, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace. So I have the peace, but now though I have the peace, I have to let the peace rule. How do I let the peace rule? The best illustration I can think of is an air filter in your car. Every time I take my uh, car in to get the oil changed, I ask them to look at the air filter as well, because we live in the mountains, and often we drive our cars up on these... Forest Service roads, there's lots of dust, you know, and so our, like, almost every time then I get a phone call from the oil people, and they say, Richard, it's the worst air filter I've ever seen, do you not care for your car, et cetera, et cetera. I say, yeah, 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 change, put a new one in, because the filter uh, prevents the air from flowing freely, excuse me, the, the, the dust in the filter prevents the air from flowing freely, and that compromises the performance of an engine. So if you don't know that, don't worry about it, but that's kind of the way it works. Uh, now, similarly, uh, there's pollutants in our lives that prevent the peace of Christ from reigning. And I'm just going to name three. There's more than three, but I'm going to name three because these are all important. Look, shame regarding your past or regret, that'll kill your peace. Fear of the future, that'll kill your peace. And bitterness, that'll kill your peace. Shame, fear, and bitterness. So what do I mean shame regarding the past? What, is that, what, what am I talking about here? Well, uh, look, all of us, uh, have this thing that goes on. How many do this? You, you lay in bed in the evening and suddenly your mind begins to replay some tapes of regrets of things that happened during the day. Anybody ever have that happen? Yeah. Or maybe it's not today, but something still from a year ago or 10 years ago. Now you're still, it's actually you're still feeling the impact of a conversation uh, and, you know, untimely words spoken three years ago and you're still feeling it today and you're living with a sense of shame and regret regarding something in the past. That's all of us at various times, Right? 
Usually on Sunday nights, when I, when I you know, fall asleep after preaching, you know, three or four times or something like that, I, I, there's a, like a little ghost here or something that says, oh, do you remember? You know, you should have talked to that person. And that, oh, that person, you saw that person, but you actually looked right past them and you, you know, you're, Richard, you're an insensitive, you know, oaf. And I hear it every Sunday, right? Because there's things that I'm not sensitive to, the Holy Spirit speaking, and I don't do it. And then this steals the peace because I go, man, if only I could go back and replay that, I'd do it differently. If only, if only, if only. Here's the thing that I want you to see. Look, you are, are you ready for this? Complete in Christ, Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. You're complete in Christ. So God's forgiven you. God loves you. And will you fail? Yes. Did you fail yesterday? Yes. Will you fail today? Probably sometime. Will you fail tomorrow? Yes, it doesn't ever change God's love for you because God's love for you was never contingent on your performance or your perfection. No, never. So we receive this thing that God loves us in spite of the fact that we've done things and God wants to free us utterly from all shame regarding our past. Free us, right? From all that we've said, from all that's happened to us, we should never live with these if-onlys regarding the past. And instead begin to realize that we are complete in Christ, we are loved, we are forgiven, we are whole. So don't think about yesterday, it's gone. And by the way, don't think about tomorrow, uh, and many of us worry about the future. This is Jesus, Matthew chapter 6, don't worry about tomorrow. Can't, like by worrying about tomorrow, can you, will that change tomorrow? No, 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 you won't, you, you can't, you, we live in a culture, you know, saturated with fears of tomorrow. And what will happen uh, uh, with North Korea? And what will happen with Somalia? And what will happen with ISIS? And what will happen with, uh, with um, you know, the political landscape? What will happen? We're worried, 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 worried. And uh, here's the thing. Jesus comes along and he says, don't worry about tomorrow. You, you can't control tomorrow at all. So fears of the future are fears of something that doesn't exist. You're afraid of a phantom. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. And none of us do know what tomorrow will bring. So we should let tomorrow come to us rather than us going to tomorrow. And just relax and enjoy it. What does Jesus say? He says, today has enough trouble of its own. And Jesus isn't trying to be negative there, but he's saying, look, the only thing that you can control in your life is your response to today. I can't control yesterday. I can't control tomorrow. I can't control this moment right now. Can I, in this moment, receive the peace of Christ? Yes. And the third thing, of course, uh, that pollutes your air filter of peace is bitterness Many of us are living with regret, like regret uh, uh, because there's a broken relationship in our lives and we're, we're, perhaps we're holding something against someone. You've been abused. Your parents divorced. There's been, a, there's been a, a, an untimely word. You've been betrayed in some way. Look, here's the way forward. Jesus taught us on the cross. He spoke to his accusers who weren't repentant at all. And what did he do? He preemptively forgave them. He pre- like he forgave them without their confession, he forgave and in Hebrews 10, it says, don't let any bitterness rise up in your heart because bitterness, will, like, it will pollute your filter. You won't know the peace of Christ. To the extent that you're bitter, you won't know the peace of Christ. So all of us in the room need to do the work of cleaning our filter, dealing with shame from the past, dealing with fear of the future, dealing with bitterness, and, it's, and you know, sweeping those things aside, dealing with bitterness by forgiving, and instead receiving the reality that we're complete in Christ. We learn to live that way. When I was in Rwanda, many people who were bitter had moved toward forgiveness, and they were bitter for big reasons. The genocide in Rwanda meant that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people had family members uh, killed, uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, Tutsis by, by Hutus. And uh, visiting our church partners over there a few years ago, it was so 
uh, remarkably supernaturally gratifying to hear stories of preemptive forgiveness. Here's somebody who lost 143 family members, Pastor Gahiji. And he's like, he ended up forgiving the people who killed uh, his family even before they ever confessed. Because he said the forgiveness ultimately wasn't even about his, the perpetrators of the crime. The forgiveness was about him. And for him to be whole, he needed to forgive. And somebody in the room, have, there's someone you need to forgive. And you want the peace of Christ, but you're carrying bitterness. Bitterness towards a parent, bitterness towards a spouse, bitterness towards a child, bitterness towards an employer, bitterness towards God. And here's Jesus, I'm giving you the peace. Now clean your filter, right? So you may know the peace in practice. Uh, one of the ways I practice this peace and practice kind of cleaning my filter, so to speak, is when I run Green Lake, and by the way, running is a generous word if you see me doing this. When I run Green Lake, um, I just, when I'm running, I, I'm praying, and I'm, every time I run, I pray the same thing, and this is what I pray. I just, I'm reminding myself of what God says is true regarding my own identity, and I'm running, and I go, I'm complete in Christ. Thank you. It's a prayer. I'm complete in Christ. What does that mean? That means I'm forgiven. That means I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. That means that God has given me gifts to bless and serve other people. I'm complete. Am I, am I, do I fail? Yeah, but I'm complete. Do I live against my own ideals? Yeah, but I'm complete. How do you know you're complete? Jesus says it, that's why. I'm complete in Christ. Thank you. And because I'm so slow, I get to say it many times. <laughs> and you know, I come back to where I live right here near the church. And no kidding, for me anyway, I'm, I'm at peace. I'm at peace. Because I know that God's in control. God's in control of my life, in control of history. I'm complete in Christ, and now I can get on with my day. My blood pressure is lower. My pulse is a little slower. Complete in Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. He's given it to you. Let it be real. Second, embrace the union. Jesus then says, having given them peace, he says this, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And this is not uh, uh, kind of a simple, hey, God sent me, so now I'm sending you. It's not that. It's also not, hey, the Father sent me, so I've decided how to send you also. That's not what he's saying. Read it carefully. Uh, Jesus is declaring here that we are sent by Christ in the same manner in which Christ was sent by the Father. In other words, the means of Christ sending us is the same means by which Christ was sent by the Father. And, and, and the priority here is on relationship similarity. I'm related to the Father in a certain way, says Jesus, and now I'm, I'm asking you to be related to me in the same way in which I'm related to the Father. And what, how was, so, how was Jesus related to the Father? Well, the Gospel of John gives, kind of cracks the code to that relationship because Jesus says over and over again in the Gospel of John this recurring phrase, not my own. And what does he mean? He says, basically, I'm paraphrasing, Jesus says, I'm living my life with empty hands. My teaching is not my own. My authority is not my own. My judgment is not my own. My works are not my own. My, my, my will is not my own. My life is not my own. So here's Jesus. Uh, Father, what do you want? I'm available. For you to express your character through me, so my judgment, my will, my authority, my, 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 my strength, my works, my life, it's all yours. Do what you want with me. I'm available. And now Jesus is saying, I'm now sending you into the world in relation to me in that same manner. So here you are. Empty your hands. 
and begin to say what I said in relation to the Father. So that as I call you into sexual purity, here's the right answer, my sexual ethic is not my own. As I call you to give, here's the right answer, my money is not my own. As I call you to forgive, here's the right answer, my bitterness is not my own. As I call you to go, my plans are not my own. My health is not my own. My authority is not my own. My judgment is not my own. My vote is not my own. My time is not my own. Here, Jesus, take my day. It's your day, not mine. I want to be available for you to express life through me. That's the gospel. You're sent into the world in dependence on Christ 24-7 because Christ was dependent on the Father 24-7. And to the extent that Christ relinquished his will, God found freedom to express God's will through Jesus. And hear me, Jesus didn't always want to do the will of the Father. Did you know that? Oh, yeah, in the garden. Remember, here's Jesus. Garden of Gethsemane, the night he's arrested, and he says, Father, it's possible that this cup, this plan you have for me, let this pass. I don't want to die. I don't want to be arrested. I don't want to be tried. I don't want to be beaten. I don't want to be executed. Let it pass. Nevertheless, says Jesus, what? Not my will, but yours be done. I, look, here's what I want. May what you want prevail. That's the gospel. So you and I are called to live in that same manner, relinquishing our plans. When I cling to my views, my choices, my lusts, my stuff, my world shrinks. And I end up behind locked doors, afraid I'm going to be found out. So we, we got to ask a question right here then. Like, what do we want? Out of, what do you want out of life? You want to preserve the life you have right now? Is that your goal? Preser- preservation? It's fine. It could be a goal. You're happy. You're healthy. You're making six figures or seven or whatever you're doing. Your investments are doing well. I just want everything to stay the same. Well, have fun with that. You can do it. You can try. I mean, I'll warn you, they won't stay the same. You'll get old. Your kids will leave someday. Your investments will collapse when there's thermonuclear war. <laughs> but if, I mean, if your goal is self-preservation, you can go for it. Or maybe your goal isn't to preserve the life you have. Maybe your goal is to improve your life. Yeah, I'm not, you know, doing meaningful work. I'm going to go after it. I'm going to make it meaningful. Or, you know, I'm not financially secure enough. I'm going to make it. Listen, you want to improve? Then go ahead. But here's the invitation from Jesus, uh, kind of wrapped in the form of a command. He says, look, I'm sending you, and I want you to actually live the same way that I lived. And how did I live? With empty hands. So that, so that kind of the mantra was not my own. Nothing's my own. So, so the life for which you're created is a life lived in union with Jesus so that you're then at rest. Because why? Look, it's, you don't have plans anymore. I mean, you're living in obedience to the Father. What does God want for you? God wants you to stay or go. God wants you to speak or be silent. God, God wants you to confront or forgive. Does God wants you to give or withhold. What does God want? It's the only question, you see. And, and, and know that if that is your intent, there will be times when your will runs smack against the will of Jesus. There will be times when what God wants of you is not what you want. Big times and little times. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, hears from God while living in America, go back to Germany in 1939 and oppose the Reich. It eventuated in his execution 
But he went back anyway. Amy Carmichael loves rain. God sends her to the desert of India. She went anyway. And when God sends you, like you don't, you don't have to want to go, but you have to go. <laughs> if you want to live this larger life, then you have to say with Jesus, my will is the one matter. And the only reason I'm here at Bethany is because I went to India in 1994. And when I was, my buddy called and said, hey, Richard, they need you in India to go teach Hebrews in like five days. I said, I don't want to go to India. He says, you got to go. God's calling you. I said, I don't have a visa. He says, well, don't worry about that. You'll get a visa. I said, I, I won't get a visa. You're Canadian. I'm American. I'm telling you, it takes a long time to get visas. We got this gigantic bureaucracy. It's, you know, da, 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 da. He says, well, don't worry about it. Just go. Buy your ticket. Listen, um, the day before I'm to leave, like this was five days, the day before I leave, the visa shows up in the mail. Oh, there's a visa. I call my friend from Canada. Hey, the visa showed up. Ha, 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 he says, and I bought your ticket. You're going, right? <laughs> He'd already purchased the ticket. And I didn't want to go, but I went anyway. It's not just big stuff. Maybe God is telling you, hey, how about this? Don't watch the news while you eat dinner. Sit at the table. How about this? Open your wallet. How about this? Use the gifts I've given you to bless and serve. Listen, when God speaks, like, we have a will. God has a will. And hello, they're not always the same. Here's the right answer. Not my will, but yours be done. Why is that the right answer? Because Jesus has sent us in the same manner in which God sent Jesus. That's why. So live with empty hands. And here's the last thing. Share the gospel. Look at verse 23. This is fascinating. It's a hard verse in the Bible. Jesus says to the disciples, right? I'm sending you out. And this is what he says. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they've been retained. What does that mean? Does that, does that mean that God is empowering you to withhold forgiveness from somebody? It sounds like it, doesn't it? Like, if you retain their sins, they've been retained. So then it's very tempting to go, hey, buddy, like, watch out. I can send you to hell. Is that what this is saying? No. Here's, here's the thing. What we need to understand is... Uh, uh, Jesus isn't saying that you have the power to forgive the sins of others. Jesus is saying, look, the work of forgiveness is already done. And I'm calling you now to proclaim that work. Do you see? Because, because in John 19, verse 30, here's a word, right? Jesus on the cross, and what does he say? It is, see one of the rest? Finished. What does that mean, it's finished? It means God's not mad anymore over sin. In fact, I know this based on 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, which says this. If we have sin, right, and we do, then we have, we, the good news is we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he, Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. What does propitiation mean? It means that, God, look, God's, God's wrath is not toward you. God's wrath is, God hates sin. God hates sin. And God has poured out God's wrath on sin, to destroy sin and death, and the act which did that is the cross. God's not mad at anyone because Christ is the propitiation for your sins. And then, same verse, 1 John 
Chapter 2, verse 2. Not only your sins, the sins of the whole world. God's not mad at anyone. So people are driving by right now, and God isn't like this. Why aren't they in church? Right? There they go. Bomb. Dead. No, no, that's not God. God's not mad at anyone. Here's the thing. God, God's brokenhearted that we're locked in a tiny room with the lights off because we're living afraid. Afraid of the economy, afraid of our neighbors, afraid of Muslims, afraid of people who have different political views than us, afraid of people who have different theological views than us, afraid of Korea, afraid of, afraid of um, ISIS, afraid. Like, do you want to live that way? No. Do you need to live that way? No. Why? It's finished. We know how this story ends. And this story ends with everything wrapped up and saturated with the glory of Christ, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. So what God is saying here is share the gospel. Because if you tell people that God's not mad, then people can enjoy the forgiveness that is already theirs, right? And if you don't tell people, then people continue to live in a tiny room locked with fear and shame. Share the good news. In other words, Romans 10. Look, how will anyone hear the good news that Christ has created a whole new world unless they're told? And how will they be told unless someone tells them? And how will anyone tell them unless they're sent? And here's the word, I'm sending you. That's it. Yeah, and then we, this is hard for us, especially Bethany people. We're like this, witness? I have to witness? What do you mean, like, what does this mean to share? I'll just tell you how it works for me, and maybe it's easier for me than you, I don't know. But uh, I, when people talk to me on an airplane, now I, I tell people that I'm a pastor. And I didn't, for, there were many years I didn't do this. When I came here in 1995, I didn't say I was a pastor when I was on a plane. People say, what do you do? And I go, I'm a teacher, which is true. I teach the Bible in different places. But I didn't want to say I was a pastor because the 80s were filled with all these scandals, of, like sex scandals with pastors and money scandals with pastors. And I didn't want to tell people I was a pastor. Now, when people uh, I meet a person on a plane, what do you do? I'm a pastor. They go, that must be rough. That's always the answer. <laughs> and this is, this is why I say it. And I, and I just go on and I say, you know what? I love my job. And by the way, I'll just say to you as your pastor, I do. I love my job. Oh, re really? What do you love about your job? I said, well, the good news is I had to share with people that God's not mad at anybody. That what happened with Christ made the way uh, for, for uh, all of God's anger to be over and God's not mad at anybody and God's created a whole new world and we're moving toward peace, not war. And uh, we're moving toward abundance, not poverty. And that I envision a future with the end of human trafficking, the end of racism, and the end of terror, and the end of, and the end of injustice, and people holding hands filled with nothing less than the new life of the resurrected Jesus saturated the whole universe. I love telling people that. And then I've heard this a couple of times, people, and people say it this way. Are you kidding me? I grew up in church. I never heard that. I thought I was hanging above a chasm of flames by a string and God was mad at me if I looked at Playboy one more time, he's going to cut the string. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Is that the good news? That's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ is reconciling all things. Why would we hide that? We, we need to share. So uh, Jesus 
sends these disciples out of their tiny room with peace, a union of utter dependency, and a boldness to share. And they went. That's why we're here this morning. So we're going to do something unusual as we close this morning. Uh, I know this is not exactly a small group, right? But we're going to treat it as such this morning. Three things. Receive the peace. Embrace the union. Live with empty hands. Share the gospel. Of the three, uh, which spoke to you most profoundly this morning? What do you need to take a step toward? Receiving the peace? Are you living with anxiety? Embracing the union? Is there some area of your life where you're clutching and you're saying, yeah, God, I will do my will in this area? Uh, sharing the gospel. Are you a covert Christian? <laughs> One of the three. So take, like, now just mingle in groups of two, three, four. Share the one. You don't have to go into detail. Just share the one. And then would you maybe pray for each other too. Here's a couple of caveats. If you don't want to share, you can say pass. And for the rest of you, when somebody says pass, don't beat them. Let them pass. <laughs> and if you don't want to pray, don't pray. But it's good sometimes to name how God has spoken to you. And so we'll do that now, just for a few minutes, and then we'll close with a responsive song. If you want to share the prayers, uh, the one thing that God has spoken to you, you can even just come up in these prayer books later and say, yeah, God spoke to me about receiving peace. God spoke to me about embracing union. I want to share my, whatever it is, and we have prayer team members, they'll be up here as well. Don't leave just hearing a thing, but take a step toward moving out of that tiny room of fear and shame so that you can live as people of hope. Father, meet us now in these moments as we share together. Give us courage and grace to hear one another. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.